Today's interview is brought to you by VanEck, a global leader in asset management since 1955. You'll be hearing more about VanEck's income-focused ETFs later on, but for now, let's get into today's interview. It is a true honor to welcome to Forward Guidance Ms. Sheila Baer, Senior Advisor to the Center for Financial Stability and the former head of the Federal Deposit Insurance Corporation. Sheila, thank you so much for coming on. Welcome. Thanks. Thanks for having me. It's my pleasure. Sheila, I want to start off by asking you, how do you assess the challenges that the FDIC faces now? Which, you know, the mission is to uh, regulate banks and handle when banks fail so that sort of panic doesn't doesn't spread. Yeah. The challenges that, that the FDIC faces now, how do they compare to the challenges that the FDIC faced it during the 2008 uh, financial crisis when you were running the FDIC? Well, uh, fortunately, I, I don't think the the challenges are as severe. The, the banking system these days is 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 safe and sound and much better capitalized and much better supervised. We have seen some supervisory uh, missteps, shall we say, with some recent failures, uh, but I don't think that signals any kind of broad-based problem. Unlike what we had uh, when I came to the FDIC in the summer of 2006, um, regulation had become very light touch. Uh, we'd been through this, they called it the golden era of banking. <laughs> and, uh, you know, we, we had, you know, kind of the policymakers decided that banks knew how to manage risk now and self-regulate and the uh, role of supervision had really been de-emphasized uh, with the bank regulators, including at the FDIC. So we had a lot of work to do to turn that around. The rules were too weak. Uh, the rules around capital were too weak. And so, that's a lot of that has been fixed now. So I do think I don't want to understate the challenges that the FDIC confronts right now, but they're not, they have a much more stable system. Uh, banks fail. And when you have cycles like this, uh, typically when interest rates go up, it creates uh, stress in the financial system. There will be more bank failures. That's what the FDIC does. It's there to make sure those uh, bank failures are handled smoothly and that the insured depositors are always protected. It's got a perfect record doing that. So it's not going to be easy. I don't want to suggest that, but I know they're up to the task. And what is the FDIC's role in regulating bank capital? That is how much loss-absorbing capital uh, there is. I know prior to the great financial crisis, there was banks did not have enough capital relative to the risky assets that they owned. It's, it's my understanding that in this instance, bank credit losses are now actually quite low at nothing compared yeah. to those names to um, seven. And the losses are interest rate risk. In other words, they bought securities that lost value when interest rates rose. That's absolutely right. So, um, so first of all, the, the FDIC is one of now three bank regulators. We eliminated the Office of Thrift Supervision. There used to be four during the great financial crisis because of the some of the problems they were having with overseeing their, uh, their thrift uh, mortgage lending institutions. So we have three now. And the capital rules for banks are, it's a collaborative process between the FDIC, the OCC, which regulates national banks, and the Fed, which is the primary federal supervisor for state chartered banks that are members of the Federal Reserve System. The non-member banks that are state chartered are regulated by the FDIC. So that means the FDIC has by far the largest number, number of banks to regulate, to supervise. But they're, they're smaller. By assets, it's not. Uh, but, but by uh, number, uh, it is uh, it is significantly more than, than the other regulators. So that creates a unique challenge. 
And traditionally, uh, the, the FDIC has taken a very strong and active role in setting capital standards. That is because, and I think traditionally the FDIC has been viewed as the toughest on capital and toughest on supervision. And I, I, I think that's frankly because what the FDIC's job is, it's to you know protect and uh, protect insured depositors against loss, and and that and that can be expensive if a bank fails. So we have, I still see we, they, <laughs> the, uh, you know, banks pay deposit insurance premiums, which, which provides capital for a deposit insurance fund, which is the money that the FDIC uses to cut, to handle the cost of a bank failure. So every time a bank fails, almost always money's got to come out of that deposit insurance fund to cover it. And that means you might have to increase premiums on banks to cover it. So the FJC is conservative. You know, they've, they've got accountability. They've got direct line financial accountability if a bank fails. And um, it's it's not like the Fed that can kind of print money, right? So we hope that they're judicious about that. But let's face it, they want to open up a lending facility. They just get that printing press going. Or actually, the computer is all digitally created now. But so I, I think that gives them a profoundly different uh, mindset. Um, so, and then also treasury sometimes, though we're all independent agencies, the treasury sometimes can get involved and the treasury typically has been more aligned with the FDIC because they also have a job of protecting taxpayers. Uh, but I, I still think the, uh, the, the FDIC is the most conservative and that capital, that capital is what keeps banks from failing. And even if they do fail, uh, it reduces the losses that the FDIC has. So it, capital is very, very important to the FDIC being able to uh, cure at its mandate. Thank you. It's my understanding that Silicon Bank, Silicon Valley Bank, based on the capital that it reported, it was reasonably high, maybe over 10%, uh, not below the regulatory threshold, correct me if I'm wrong. And I don't know uh, what regulatory threshold that is, but you know, in your book, Bulls by the Horns, which I, I loved and I recommend everyone check out, you were quite vocal in very early on, 2005, 2006, about the failures, inadequacies of Basel II. Right. Uh, in, in finding out uh, credit risk and measuring credit risk that, that banks have, the amount of capital that banks have to hold against the, those risks. Does Basel III, you know, even though its track record for credit risk is, is quite good, does there need to be a change in terms of uh, measuring how banks' ca- capital needs to have in order to absorb interest rate losses? Because yeah. if, you know, yeah. Silicon Valley Bank was 11% and that was above the threshold and it, it went bust, kind of is an issue. Well, that's absolutely true. And and you're right. Right now, the main issue is interest rate risk and how it's causing unrealized market losses on securities that are longer dated and have lower yields. Uh, so that's the problem now. I, I think eventually we're going to, especially if we go into recession, we're going to have some credit risk issues too. But right now, it is interest rate risk. And no, uh, the capital uh, rules do not adequately take into account uh, it, it's all about credit losses. It's really all about credit losses, overly uh, concentrated on credit losses. This is one of the many reasons why I and the FDIC traditionally have always strongly supported leverage ratio to complement the risk-based standards. So you're right, the risk-based standards treat government securities as zero risk. So under the risk-based capital rules, you can use 100% leverage. <laughs> you don't have to put any of your own capital up if you, uh, if you invest in a government security of course, when interest rates go up, those government securities, especially those long-dated government securities, are anything but safe. They're quite risky and can generate a lot of unrealized losses or realized losses if you have to sell them to meet liquidity demand. So that's not adequately reflected in the Basel. Fortunately, though, we do have a leverage ratio that applies to the entire 
organizations. So everything is, it doesn't try to say this asset's more risky than this asset. So you need more capital here and less capital here. It just says, you know, as a, as a banking organization that's important to our economy and has access to safety net programs, we don't think your leverage should exceed this, right? And typically 6% for, it's not that high, but you know, it, but it, it's, it's just a flat percentage. You can't game it with saying some, by investing in so-called low-risk assets. So that's really kind of saved our bacon. Again, the leverage ratio during the great financial crisis kept at least the the the, the, the FDIC-insured banks, uh, kept them more stable because they did have that leverage ratio, even though the risk-based standards then were treating mortgages and mortgage-backed securities as extremely low risk. That was a laugher. So it's the same thing going on now, right? If the, so it treats government securities as zero risk or mortgage government back mortgage backed securities called so-called agency securities and then agency debt. Treating that as very not zero risk, but very low risk with the risk-based standards. But that leverage ratio, again, is it is uh, is 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 saving the regulators bacon to some extent by ensuring there's, you know, regardless of what you got on your balance sheet, you still got some level of capital behind it. And how widespread is the concentration of very duration-sensitive securities, such as you know, agency mortgage-backed securities, Silicon Valley Bank, I believe, owned over $100 billion of them, and they bought them when rates were at their lowest because their deposits you know, close to tripled. Uh, is this kind of a one-off, or are there other, yeah. other banks that may have this? Well, I, I think you know, it's, it's significant. Uh, they're, look, they're, they, uh, the Fed, uh, the government issued a lot of debt. Somebody had to buy it. Max bought a lot of it. <laughs> the Fed was pumping cash in. They had a lot of deposit. You need to put your deposits somewhere. So, you know, in comparison to the banks, and I'm not going to excuse any of the banks that failed their management, you know, this is just a risk everybody knew about. It was their job to manage it. But that dynamic of pushing a lot of money into the system through fiscal stimulus, the pandemic relief funds, juicing up deposits and issuing all this debt, and, and, the, and, the, and the, uh, uh, the buildup of reserves in the system, uh, that helped create this phenomenon. So there's, there's a lot of, of this debt on bank balance sheets right now. That's okay if they can hold it to maturity. Um, it's really so. All banks, if it's if the, if the securities put in something called holds a maturity, that means you have both the intention and the ability to hold it to maturity. You're going to have a low yielding asset, so that's going to compress hurt your earnings. But you don't have to realize market losses if you hold it to maturity. Obviously, you can redeem it at par value, and, and then you're fine. The problem is, is the these banks that have a very hot, what I would call hot deposit base, which Silicon Valley did. I mean, no, over well over ninety percent was uninsured. Not only was it uninsured, but it was this very close knit kind of affiliated group of Silicon Valley, uh, you know, venture capitalists and their portfolio companies. You know, they all knew each other, and social media played a role. But they they were going to be able to run very quickly, uh, regardless of social media. So. If, if you've got that kind of hot money, you do not have the ability to hold to maturity all these long-dated uh, securities that they had put, they had put in their hold to maturity portfolio. So um, that's really the problem. You got to look at the banks that have unstable deposit bases that could have steep spikes in liquidity demands or redemptions of deposits that would force them to sell securities in their HGM, their hold to maturity. But for most banks, that's not the case. Again, these were, I mean, it's kind of a common theme with these banks. Most of them is high reliance on uninsured and very rapid growth. I mean, those are two just toxic things. And those have been, those are toxic back during the great financial crisis. We had the same problem with banks then. It was commercial real estate. They 
you know, grow really quickly with broker deposits then. They, they were insured, but it was still very expensive for the FDIC. But those those were uh, those are big flags. So and broker do- deposits can run too because they're they're based on yield. They're not based on a relationship with the bank. So we had this hot money, you know, uh, risky asset phenomenon during the great financial crisis. You've got it now, though. Ironically, the risky assets are the government debt, not commercial real estate loans. Though CRE is probably coming later. <laughs> yes, yeah, it could be. So yeah. both are an issue: uh, risky assets that decline in value, as well as hot money, chunky deposits that can be withdrawn right. at quickly. Uninsured deposits above that two hundred fifty dollar. Yeah. And, and even I would say, even if it's insured deposits, if they're what's called broker deposits, and that that's a term of art for different people. I I define it as money that is in a bank with a high yield that, that is there only because the depositor is seeking yield. It's brought in by a third party. There's no other relationship with the bank. Even though that's insured, that can be hot because as soon as somebody is offering a higher rate, it, it's gone. And what would you say truly causes a bank run? I'm sure that uh, asset quality has a lot to do with it. You know, when uh, there was a bank run on IndyMac. That was because they had a lot of subprime mortgages, but there probably were banks that had subprime mortgages that didn't have a, a bank run. And, and you, can you speak to the degree of the the media playing a role, uh, fear spreading and fear being contagious, yeah. as well as you know, how do you evaluate sort of the media's uh, performance and being accurate this time around compared to when you were uh, in that, at the FGIC? Yeah, so I, I've been disappointed in the media um, this time. I, I think there's been a lot of hyperbole uh, around this. I, I, I think, in fairness, I, I, w- I did criticize uh, the decision to use the systemic risk determination to bail out uninsured depositors at Silicon Valley and Signature Bank. First of all, I didn't see it as systemic. They didn't really show their work that they were, there was instability with uninsured deposits. They were worried about a you know a massive run. This was two banks at 4,100 banks. You know, three hundred billion in assets and a twenty-three trillion dollars system. So I, I, they didn't show the work as to why they thought using the traditional um, tools of the FDIC to, to close a bank, which which includes providing a sizable dividend, advanced dividend to uninsured depositors. I don't think the case was ever made that they couldn't have used the usual process. I think what ended up happening was there was all this drama around it. Because they did say it was systemic. They did say both of these banks were systemic. They did say they were worried about uninsured deposit runs. And then ap- I think that's why afterwards you saw this precipitated, well, this precipitated uninsured deposit runs where, you know, and we'll, we'll probably debate that forever, where they've been better to just use the usual procedures, get out there or the communication strategy. These are, you know, aberrant banks. This is not, you know, this whole system's fine. These are unusually bad banks, you know, poorly managed this unique high reliance on uninsured deposits. I think they could have gone out with that and it would have been a lot, uh, a lot better and, and less instability. So uh, that is, uh, that was my concern about why they use this systemic risk determination. And I don't, now that things are calming down now, I think you can see it, the people, as they look more thoughtfully at these banks, it's, you know, it's, it's, uh, it's okay. But, the, but there were there was a lot of drama around that, so the press was focused on because the systemic risk determination is an extraordinary procedure. You know, two thirds of the FDIC, the Fed, the Treasury Secretary, the president's got to sign off. I mean, it's 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 a dramatic procedure, and so that the press was was unjustifiably or perhaps understandably not justifiably paying a lot of attention. But later then, especially when First Republic failed, so then you're seeing these headlines: you know, second, third, and fourth largest banks in history fail. 
And I did feel that was misleading because it made it sound like this was potentially even worse than the great financial crisis when a point of fact, it was the very largest banks during the great financial crisis that were in trouble that were truly imperiling our entire economy. They were at risk of toppling. They were pulling back on credit. They were creating disruptions for the, in the markets because of their instability. We just didn't let them fail. I mean, we should, we should acknowledge that they really did fail. It's just we didn't run into the FDIC's process. We bailed them out. But I do think that that distinction, a very, very important distinction, is not being recognized by all this hyperbolic, oh, second, third, and fourth largest banks. So I, I wish, I know, hey, you know, they're, they're out. They, they're under pressure like everybody to, uh, to deliver, get a lot of people to read them, a lot of people to click on their stories. So I understand that. But I do think this is exaggerated the severity of what's going on and has created, you know, more fear and uncertainty with the public than they should have around the banking system. Another distinction when people throw around that chart I've seen on Twitter of uh, Silicon Valley Bank is the third largest FDIC uh, shutdown ever. Uh, First Republic is the second one. Of course, you did the the first one with uh, Washington Mutual. That leaves out Lehman Brothers and Bear Stearns, which (laughs) because they they weren't under FDIC uh, jurisdiction because they didn't have retail deposits. Right. Well, that's right. And AIG, which which de facto went into a Fed, you know, conservatorship basically for many years. Citigroup, which by my count had four bailouts, and then even B of A later, Merrill Lynch. It was mainly the investment banks. That's right, the the non banks. But then after B of A bought Merrill Lynch, it started having problems too. So they they were you know. Probably half of the mega institutions were in serious trouble, needing government intervention, and 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 that and that was the problem. It was you know we didn't let them fail, but they still pulled back on credit, and that's what sent the uh, the economy into a nosedive. Uh, so I do think that needs to be it's an important distinction that's not getting relayed in the in the coverage comparing uh, then and now. Uh, what was during your tenure at the FDIC, two thousand six, two thousand eleven? What was the status of the callability of deposits. I assume people could withdraw it uh, from, from their computer when they're at home, but a lot of them did go into branches and withdraw it. The smart ball refs was issued, uh, created during the, this period and popularized because now to what degree is it a totally different ball game where, you know, um, the Becker, a, a former um, CEO of the Silicon Valley Bank just uh, testified before Congress and said that I think $40 billion was withdrawn over 10 hours and 142 over two days. That was a, a rapidity of withdrawals that even during the depths of the dire financial crisis that, that you, you uh, marshaled the FDIC through uh, was totally different, right? Right. Yeah, it, it, it has sped up a bit. Uh, and although I think there was, I know... <laughs> If there were a lot of uh, wire uh, wire transfers uh, lined up in the queues at all those banks, that, and I think the FDIC honored them. So, interestingly, you know, the money didn't all escape at once, but mm. the bank was obliged to honor the, the the wire request, even though you know the systems were backed up, so the money hadn't quite left. So, uh, I, I do think, um, yes, it, it can move faster. I mean, I but you know, it's important. In this day and age, uh, we need a more efficient payment system. So I, I can't say I criticize, uh, you know, the, the ability to move money more quickly. But a, a negative of that, I think the positives outweigh the negatives. But the negatives of that, as as you point out, is is that deposits can withdraw pretty quickly when they want to. Um, so there, but there's one exception to that, which is kind of a reason why I think. Um, 
it's important to give them, at least on a temporary basis, uh, unlimited coverage. And that's these operational accounts, these transaction accounts that businesses and other organizations use to make payroll, pay expenses, you know, bring revenues in, uh, send money out uh, to pay the bills. Um, those are typically, I mean, you can always move money, but, but in terms of moving the functionality of those accounts quickly, you can't really do it. And that's why you, you find these operational accounts are quite stable because they can't move quickly. But that creates a lot of uh, instability in that category when you get into a situation like that. Because if you're a small and medium-sized business or any business that's dealing, dealing with a bank that you view as small enough to fail, even if you think it's a quite healthy bank and probably is a quite healthy bank, you're looking around the uncertainty and, boy, if this bank fails, if I can't have access to my money, I'm going to be in trouble. You know, that's, I can't operate without access to my transaction account. So you're seeing a lot of that, those accounts starting to migrate to J.P. Morgan Chase and the other you know, so-called too-big-to-fail institutions. And that's really, even from healthy banks, and that's bad because those, you know, the regional community banks, their lifeblood is is, bending, is lending that small and medium-sized business sector. They start losing those account relationships. You're going to see that the regional bank and banks in particular hollowed up pretty fast. So I do think that needs to be stopped. We we had we had through the systemic risk authority, we had the ability to do a temporary guarantee program during the Great Financial Crisis. For whatever reason, Dodd-Frank took that authority away from the FDIC. It created a fast-track approval process for, for TAG. We called it TAG, Transaction Account Guarantee. But the Congress now has to approve it. And the president has to ask for Congress to approve it, which the president has not done. So I'm kind of scratching my head on all of that. I, I, uh, I do think that those kinds of accounts, because operationally, they just can't move fast. Actually, that, those are the one accounts you probably need to protect and give them some unlimited coverage for a temporary period of time um, to stop this migration, which is just you know making the, the banking system even more concentrated. After last year's interest rate surge, income has made a comeback, and VanEck has the ETFs to help bring income to your portfolio. You can check out VanEck's wide range of income-focused ETFs using their Income Investing Yield Monitor, where you can search by yield, duration, and expense to find the ETF that fits your needs. With the Yield Monitor, you can effortlessly track monthly fixed income ETF category flows, yields, total returns, and more. To access VanEck's Income Investing Yield Monitor, go to vanek.com slash forward guidance. Now the disclosures. Investing risk includes principal loss. Visit vanek.com to read a prospectus before investing. Vanek ETFs are distributed by Vanek Securities Corporation, a wholly owned subsidiary of Vanek Associates Corporation. Thanks, and let's get back to the interview. I know there was a time when uh, then uh, uh, head of the New York Fed, Tim Geithner, uh, wanted to propose an unlimited guarantee on money market funds, and you opposed that because you feared that money would flood out of banks into the money markets. And you, you said we would soon hear a giant sucking sound of uninsuring deposits. <laughs> yes. Straining not to be the money market funds. Is that the situation that the, the bank system finds itself in right now? Yeah. Well, yeah, it's kind of working reverse. Actually, Tank Paul, so did you want to do that? We can't blame Tim on that one. Our Tim might have encouraged it. I don't know. But, uh, you know, but Hank, and to Hank's credit, he writes about this in his book that I called him and then we worked it out. So mm-hmm. the there was no unlimited guarantee. It was just, it was the balances at the end of the day that it was announced that that was what was guaranteed. So you couldn't, yeah, it, we didn't want money rushing in out of banks into money market funds, which is, which is what would have happened. So 
I, I do think we've got a little instability going the other way now. Uh, it's, 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 uh, so money market funds are paying, you know, it's great. I've got money, money market fund. I'm getting almost 5% on my money market funds. So that, that's nice. But I, I don't, I think that creates some challenges for banks uh, that are, are, are part of an uneven, uneven playing field because money market funds now, you, they've been being let twice by the Fed. So they're perceived as too big to fail. And they've got access to the Fed's overnight reverse repo facility, which pays almost as much as a bank earns on its reserve account. So the, the reverse repo facilities is the functional equivalent of a reserve account. You know, you just keep rolling the money over every day and, and you get, you know, it's north of 5% now what they can get on the reverse repo uh, facility. So they've got all these benefits of being a bank without being a bank, without the capital, liquidity, the supervision, all that, and that, and that net costs, those are expensive. So I do think government policy and, and, and fit expansion of its safety net to money market funds has created this difficulty of, of money market funds being able to pay really, really high rates, at least the government money market funds. So I, I think that the um, the Fed needs to l- at least lower the rate. So it's, it's only 25 basis points lower than what a bank would get on its reserves. They should at least lower the the ONRRP rate. So you you reduce this uneven uh, playing field disparity that it now exists between money market funds and banks. You know that said, um, yeah, we're going to see more. Some of this deposit migration has not been to, to the too big to fail banks. It's been to money market funds. And uh, that's going to continue unless banks start paying more interest on their deposits, which they are already starting to do. All right. During the great financial crisis, you were a noted critic of policies that helped too big to fail banks, but did not do enough to help Main Street as well as smaller community banks and regional banks. Uh, I mean, do you think that the regional banks and smaller banks are are facing a, a big issue? And uh, I mean, do you, how worried are you about consolidation? Oh, I do. So th- this deposit migration to too big to fail banks is is partly because government has allowed this perception of you know we that's what we did to the great financial crisis. We bailed everybody out, no matter how badly managed they were. You know, uh, Lehman Brothers and Bear Stearns would give Silicon Valley Bank a good run for their money in terms of <laughs> the worst managed. So it's you know it's uh, of course Lehman we didn't bail out, but uh, Citigroup too, AIG, come on. So. Um, that's yeah. So we created this perception. Governors created this perception. We've tried to undo it with Dodd Frank, but I think there's still the market still views that they're too big to fail. So we created this perception, which is why I really think at least for transaction accounts, provide a temporary unlimited guarantee, so that the community banks and the regional banks can keep those really really important business account. Those accounts are their lifeblood, and Congress again needs to authorize the FDIC to do that. I wish they would. Um, and it's, uh, you know, I, I think we made it unlimited. You had to pay zero interest or very low interest rate. We didn't want a game, you know, provide unlimited coverage to everybody. You're going to have all this gaming of it, you know, banks offering high yields and bringing a lot of money in and potentially doing all sorts of stupid, reckless things with it. So, you, you know, that's the problem with universal deposit insurance. But for transaction accounts that have very low yields, because they're used for operations, they're not used, they're not an investment product. They're used for operations provide a temporary unlimited guarantee. And I did, people say, oh, well, you're not going to limit it. You know, we didn't limit it because the low interest rate was was somewhat self-correcting. So you're not going to pile a bunch, several hundred million dollars into account that doesn't pay any interest, right? You just, <laughs> the incentives are not going to be to do that. So having the, the rate cap 
is a good uh, feature of that. Plus, you know, if you put a cap on it, was it two and a half million, ten million, whatever, you you risk. You know, there are a lot of probably medium-sized, especially businesses and nonprofits too, that you know on any day might go above that two million dollar cap. You know, a nonprofit gets a big grant. It may go to their checking account, their transaction account before it goes into their investment portfolio. A local government, when tax season's in, they're bringing in tax revenues. They're going to be, you know, way above that. So I do think it should be unlimited. And and it, also, I, I, I want the regional banks to be a little competitive with the larger businesses. If you say, okay, we're going to cap it at $10 million, they're pretty much any business. And that's going to be most of them probably. They're going to have account uh, transaction accounts that will every time sometimes fluctuate above that $10 million. They're still going to go to the too big to fail banks. So I, I do think that's that's the approach we used during the Great Financial Crisis. I think that's the approach we should use again today. Uh, but but in any event, please Congress just give the FDIC authority to reinstate this program. It's so important. And that program uh, give unlimited deposit uh, in, insurance for as uh, transaction accounts. Just transaction accounts, right? That has zero, basically zero nominal interest. And, and what was the, uh, how long did that program last? So we had it, this is what was funny about it. We we had it for two years. I actually thought we could transition out earlier, but we were, you know, we were trying to do it in tandem with some of the other programs and the Fed wasn't quite able, willing to, to exit. So we left it in place on some of these. So we left it in place for two years. And then Congress actually and Dodd-Frank, while taking the FDIC's authority away <laughs> to have this guarantee, they extended it for another two years. So um, that was a head scratcher too. So it ended up two years at the FDIC and another two years, so a total of four years. Um, but the important, important point was it was temporary. I think a lot of people are cynical about temporary guarantees now, right? Because once you do these programs, they somehow become permanent. And that certainly has happened in other contexts, but that was not what we, what we were doing with the transaction account. Once it was no longer needed, we, we took it away. In your book, you note that your preference is to, if you have to shut down a bank, always do it at the end of the day, preferably on a Friday. That way people aren't worried about it. Silicon Valley Bank, I believe, shut down, you know, maybe even before uh, noontime. Was that necessary? If if you were running, would you have tried to shut it down after, you know, when it was dark out? Yeah. Well, I I felt, given the size of the deposit run, I understood why they had to close it early. Yeah, I I think, yeah, I would, because it, the more, of course, they ended up bailing out all the uninsured anyway, but if they'd use their normal procedures, the more uninsured that kept leaving that bank, the costs were going up and up and up because in a normal failure, uninsured deposits will help provide some loss absorption. So the more they leave the bank, the higher the cost for the FDIC will go. So I can understand why they needed to 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 staunch that. Plus, I mean, you're kind of if if and it, it was it was a risk of no longer being able to meet its liquidity obligations, and that that is a bright line trigger to close a bank. So, yeah, it's uh, I, with a with with a bank that's uh, closed because of deposit runs, it's sometimes hard to wait until uh, the close of business. So I, I I get why they had to do it early. Absolutely. Hmm. You note uh, that when the Federal Reserve makes loans either via the discount window or now via the new bank term funding program announced uh, two days after Silicon Valley Bank failed. If those loans are made to insolvent institutions that will subsequently fail, sometimes the cost to the FDIC could actually increase because those loans are guaranteed by good assets. I imagine this problem is greater when you're you're lending uh, assets 
at a, at a value inflated to its market value when you're running against at, at par value. Uh, if if I understand that theory correctly, like let's say for example, First Republic, which did borrow quite heavily from the discount window and the bank term funding program, was the great was the cost to the FDIC? I think announced at thirteen billion dollars. Was it that high because of did did the Fed lending uh, increase the cost to the FDIC? And I think it's called the VIF. Yeah. Oh, it absolutely does. That's another reason why you want to um, you want to be careful about that. And the federal home loan banks lend quite generously to it, and they, they've been a big problem because yeah, both the Fed and the, and the federal home loan banks will take all the high quality collateral. <laughs> they've got they've got themselves covered one way uh, upside and yeah, down the other. And uh, yeah, so they can claim those assets, and those are assets the FDIC cannot sell to recover its own losses. So it absolutely uh, adds, adds to the cost, which is another reason why you don't want to delay too long. Uh, a bank that's on life support, that kind of collateralized uh, borrowing, if, 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 it's, if it's cooked, if it's going to fail eventually, close it sooner than later because, yeah, the FDIC's, tasks, the FDIC's tasks, costs can really go up quickly. And can you, can you give us a glimpse that you know very few other people on earth can, can give us of how do you make the decision to shut down a bank? Because as you say, if you shut it down sooner, the cost is less. But I imagine many people, not only people who work at the bank, CEOs at the bank who own stock in the bank, as well as other regulators who you know, perhaps people are stepping on each other's uh, feet over over there, they say, oh, don't don't do that. You're being way too aggressive. How, how do you make yeah. that call? Yeah. Well, it's hard. I mean, you don't want to prematurely close a bag because if it's not going to fail, you know, you're going to, at a minimum, you're going to probably wipe out the shareholders and and uh, a good chunk of the the debt holders, and um, you know, people are going to lose their jobs. Uh, it could be disruptive to the bank customers. So you don't you don't want to necessarily close a bag. You never want to do that. On the other end, if you wait too long, um, that your costs are going to go up significantly. And I. I just my experience and going back and looking during the SNL days when, you know, delays in closing those those banks, those old SNLs were really created astronomical costs for the government. So um, I, th- I think the bias is typically to delay or the pressure is to delay, which the FDIC needs to resist because at the end of the day, nobody wants the bank to close except for the FDIC to minimize losses. And uh, it is, so it, it takes an act of courage. And then technically, the FDIC does not close the bank. It's a chartering entity. So sometimes you'll let, so it will be the office for the national banks, it would be the OCC. For the state chartered banks, it would be the state uh, banking supervisors, typically. And sometimes, you know, you, the, F, it will, the FDIC will have to cajole them into to pulling the charter because nobody wants to admit they were supervised a bank that failed. So, so that can be another dynamic that, that delays the closing. But it's um, there's a lot of pressure not to close it in a timely way, and and that's one of the FDIC's many tough jobs. Yeah. Oh, uh, what pressures do you do you see now that the FDIC faces now about not to press you? Now that with the benefit of hindsight, you know, from reading your book, other t- accounts, we can see that you, as lead, the leader of the FDIC, were under uh, in some cases a great deal of pressure to refrain from sh- shutting down a bank. Do you have any insight into the potential pressures that the FDIC is facing now? Yeah. I was surprised at uh, the heavy involvement of the Biden administration with with SVP and Signature Bank. I, I, and I assume that was because they decided to do a systemic risk determination. But I do think it's important for the Treasury, the Fed, everybody stand back and let the FDIC do their job. That's always a challenge. 
uh, and I found it a challenge too. And um, but you know, this is what the FDIC does. This is the role it plays. It's got great people and wonderful expertise to be handling these bank failures when they occur. And so I do hope that the the Biden administration, the Treasury Department, the White House, and the Fed respect that, and and let them support them, collaborate with them, but, but let them do their work and let them drive the key decision making because that's that's what they do and that's what they do best. Um, that I think the confusion around uninsured deposits now is also a particular challenge because there were some statements made implying that you know all uninsured deposits are going to be protected now. There's no, you know, the, the classic implicit guarantee. Oh my gosh, you think we would learn our lesson about implied guarantees? There's no legal authority behind that. They've got to make a systemic risk determination bank by bank. They're not going to get that. They're all, they're, at least the Republicans, is my guess, on the FDIC board, of, you know, and others perhaps too, are not going to be making voting each time, you know, all banks, no matter what size or circumstance, are going to be making a systemic risk determination to protect uninsured depositors. That's not going to happen. Plus, the reserves that the FDIC has built is, is based, the premiums have been calibrated based on a $250,000 cap. So like any implicit guarantee, no financial backing and no legal authority. So I think, I think that's a problem. And another reason why it would be really good for Congress to let the FDIC reinstate transaction account guarantee authority to help assure at least these very precious and important business accounts could count to the regional banks. And I bet they're, you know, things are so polarized now in Washington and nobody can agree on anything. So I understand the Biden administration's reluctance to ask for that, but I wish they would, because I think the uninsured deposit uncertainty is is really going to be the FDIC's big challenge right now. Can you explain just for us what the exactly the systemic risk determination is and uh, does it grant the FDIC the ability to uh, insure specific banks above $250,000. To what degree is that systemic risk determination exception yeah. also applied to the Federal Reserve, which I think made a, another special case, perhaps right. for 13.3, to do the bank term funding program? Right. So, so the Fed does not have to have a systemic risk determination for a 13.3 program. They do have to, if they're going to do 13.3, they have to make it generally available. So this was something in Dodd-Frank, which I pushed for. I know the Fed hates it, but I, I thought it was good because... You, you provide these liquidity programs. You're just buying them to selectively the banks. You're going to those the sick banks. You're going to be disadvantaging the healthy banks. And I think the optics around this are really bad. Like your favoritism, you know, you're helping Citibank, you're not helping AIG, or the or Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac. We got a lot of that during the crisis because there was this picking and choosing going on. So at thirteen three, there are restrictions. They have to make it generally available, and they have to file a report to Congress. They have to disclose the users, but there's a year delay. So there there's some uh, apparatus around it. For the systemic risk determination now, it's really most relevant for individual bank failures to create an exception to the least cost test. So it, the, the FDIC is under a mandate to resolve a bank in the way that's least cost to the deposit insurance fund. That means that, for instance, a Silicon Valley bank that is over 90% funded with uninsured deposits deposits that the FDIC has no legal obligation to guarantee, you are always, your liquidation scenario is always going to be your least cost because you're only having to pay 5% of the deposits, right? You've got a $225 billion bank, a couple hundred billion of assets to sell for a few billion of, of insured deposits. So liquidation is always going to be your least cost. So, um, 
that that's why uh, they felt like they needed to do a systemic risk determination so that they could provide, you know, bail loss to all these uninsured who, under the ordinary rules, would be absorbing losses, not the deposit insurance fund. Those uninsured depositors would have been absorbing those losses, which, again, as I said, I, I think is it would have been the right uh, solution. But that's that's basically the relevance of the systemic systemic risk exception now. And traditionally, it's, it's been used for much larger institutions, much more interconnected institutions. I don't frankly like it at all. I, I think Dodd-Frank got it backwards. Dodd-Frank should have left the FDIC with authority to provide broad-based guarantees that benefited the system and removed its authority to do one-off bailouts. For whatever reason, they did not do this. And I, you know, it's still, I remember it very well. It was an 11th hour thing by Dick Shelby pushing this and we it was just you know this is like the last thing and i i <laughs> my strong suspicion is some money market funds were behind <laughs> there's all this competition between banks and money market funds i don't know if that's true up but anyway so that so it's really backwards but but that that's to the extent the systemic risk exception is still relevant it's with these one-off bank failures allowing the fdic to get around the, the least cost uh, resolution requirement and so that, yeah, that least cost resolution requirement is the FTC should do or needs to do whatever costs the least uh, money from the from the diff that uh, right, exactly. what does you stand for again? Sorry, the deposit insurance fund. Yes, deposit insurance fund. Thank thank you. Okay, so that's the yeah. cost test. Is that the right approach, or should broader factors be considered, such as concentration? In other words, J.P. Morgan took over yeah. public. That was the least cost. In the same way, they took over. Bear Stearns, I, I don't know if that, that was least cost, but it seems like the cheapest option is something that results in the biggest banks getting bigger and bigger. Right. Well, it, it may or may not. It certainly did in this situation. And, you know, big banks just have advantages, uh, period, in terms of resources and the ability to do due diligence quickly and all of that. There is, so another way to attack uh, tackle that would be who gets on the bidding list. So the primary supervisor of a bank it needs to approve it first before it can bid on a failed bank. So the OCC in that case could say, you know, we're not going to approve JP Morgan. We're worried about system stability from concentration. We're not going to approve these large banks anymore. They they could they could say that. I think they'd probably have legal authority to do that. That so but but so under current law, that you know would be an approach. Now the downside of that is yes, it's going to address concentration, increasing concentration, but it's also going to probably increase the FDIC's cost because you're going to be taking out you know is it all the GSIPs, you know all six of them, you're taking all of them out, or eight if you count the custodial banks. You're going to take all of them out so they can't bid anymore. So that's a big big part of the uh, part of the market, uh, the, the potential bidding universe. So. Um, I, I, it's a tough one. I, I I don't have a good answer, but I do think if the OCC wanted to, it would have, through its you know safety and soundness authority and system stability mandate, um, it, it it could uh, you know restrict uh, the ability of the mega banks, the trillion dollar banks, at least to uh, to bid on these others. Thank you. So you are the co-founder of the Systemic Systemic Risk Council. Risk Council, correct. Uh-huh. Right, where you are um, a chair emerita. I don't know to what degree you were involved in this letter, but in uh, July 2019, the Systemic Risk Council sent a letter to uh, Jerome Powell, head of the Fed, uh, the head of the FDIC at that time, Elena Williams, and uh, CC, the Comptroller of the OCC, Office of the Comptroller of the Currency. And it wrote that basically the Systemic Risk Council uh, 
opposed uh, uh, relaxing resolution planning requirements for large regional banks. And you said there was a worry that, uh, not you, the system of risk houses wrote that if ever a large regional bank failed and could not be resolved, the authorities might face a choice between material losses to the uh, DIF or a taxpayer uh, bailout. It's unclear whether the banking authorities have planned and prepared adequately for the failure of large regional banks. You know, about four years later, with with the benefit of hindsight, uh, what do, what do you think? I mean, how involved were you in writing? writing well, well, no, I was very involved in that. And we, you know, look, as I was leaving, I, I wish I'd been able to, to finish it before I left. But we had we I had asked the staff, so we had Title II and Dodd Frank, which created a resolution mechanism for the very largest banks, really the banking organizations along with, you know, resolution planning, a.k.a. living well requirements. And I said, we, sh- we should do this for the-, the banks, the larger banks that we insure, because, you know, they were not going to be candidates for a Title II probably, but we still needed good resolution planning around them. So, um, you know, the- I think that just it kind of sort of got done, but maybe not as-, as aggressively as it should have gotten done. It was kind of fits and starts. Uh, of uh, requiring, uh, you know, living well, essentially living well plans from the uh, from the larger uh, regionals, and we did oppose any loosening of the the requires. Frankly, could have been better, could have been stronger. We certainly opposed any loosening of them, and the long term debt requirement too. I know the regional banks don't like that. I know they uh, they argue it was some justification that you know the, the very largest banks already have long term debt requirements, unsecured debt requirements. And that's important for a couple of reasons. It's a very stable source of funding, right? Long-term debt can't run. They're stuck. They, you know, buy a multi-year bond or whatever. They're, they're stuck until their, their bond matures. So it's stable funding. But it's also, if a bank fails, it's loss absorption below those depositors to protect the depositors. So it's a really important tool uh, for, for orderly resolutions. resolutions. And the big banks already have to do it. But the regional banks say, well, because they're viewed as too big to fail, the rates they have to pay on their their long term debt, we call it bailable debt, is really not that high, and there's some justification for that. And I think maybe some of the, the probably the requirements should be calibrated based on the um, the size of the bank and also the stability of its deposit base. If it's if it's uh, if it's not heavily reliant on unstable uh, deposits, maybe you could have a, a lower requirement. Uh, there's a cure. In a stick approach to another thing I did before I left, we associated risk-based, create risk-adjusted premiums for deposit insurance. And one thing we gave credit for was if you did have a lot of long-term debt, it's a very incremental benefit. Probably can make it a lot higher, but that might be, you know, make them issue the debt, but give them a lot bigger uh, credit against their premium. That might be a, another way to approach it. Needs paying a bit, but they they do need to do it. I know they don't like it. But I think it's in their interest because it will give uninsured, they want to keep those uninsured deposits, they want to keep those large accounts. It will give those uninsured depositors a lot more confidence uh, that they're going to be protected. Even if the bank gets in trouble, uh, they're going to get protected. We were able to resolve WAMU at no zero cost of the deposit insurance fund. We actually, GP Morgan Chase gave us a couple billion that we were able to um, provide some, um, a little bit of a recovery for the unsecured, unsecured debt holders. But we were able to do an all deposits. So GP Morgan Chase took all deposits. We didn't have to hear cut any of the depositors. No losses to the deposit insurance fund. And we were able to do that because the capital and long-term debt at WAMU was enough to absorb the losses. That's, that's the ideal scenario. If a bank fails, you want to have that amount of loss absorption un, 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 underneath the deposits. 
to to uh, um, to resolve the bank. And that's, you know, it's great for the deposit insurance fund. It was great for the banks. It did not involve an increased premiums for them because there was zero cost. Who can force banks to raise more capital, as, as I believe was done during the great financial crisis? And, you know, I'm not asking you to comment on a particular name, but just I think PacWest, its stock fell sharply down to $11, which, you know, to its executives at the time felt low. And they, yeah. they said, we're not going to raise more equity. But then it fell down to, you know, as low as less than $2. Recently, I think now it's at six dollars. So, you know, I know, for example, City Citigroup, um, which you have a lot of thoughts about, uh, the government forced them to to raise a lot of equity, which hurt their share price a lot, but perhaps increased stability. Yeah, well, you do, and I, I can only assume there are some, uh, you know, good discussions going on now with supervisors and some of the uh, less stable banks about raising more capital. I mean, we were we we you know we. WAMU, we, you know, WAMU was on our radar very early on because it's huge exposure to these all-day mortgages, subprime as well as these all-day mortgages, very risky mortgages. Uh, it's just management was not good. They, WAMU had a lot of problems. And but so they they did try to raise capital. They did raise some capital. It wasn't enough. Uh, we didn't think at the time it was enough. It forestalled the, the bank failing for several months, but it still failed. So but you can some but sometimes that works. And there were other banks where we did get them to raise capital. And they did not fail. And yeah, it hurts because their share price is low. They're going to take a lot of dilution if they do it, but that's sure better than failing. And uh, so I, I can only assume now that uh, that uh, supervisors, probably in consultation with the FDIC, are encouraging a number of banks to raise capital and uh, and take uh, other steps to, you know, can you reduce your assets too? That's another way to, uh, to strengthen your capital ratio. Of course, the problem with that is, you know, Part of that usually is cutting back on lending. We don't want a credit crunch to uh, to accelerate in a recession, which is looks looks increasingly likely. Yeah. Um, so the, the Federal Reserve regulated a lot of banks uh, prior to the Great Financial Crisis, you know, which objectively ha- had a lot of issues. The Federal Reserve also regulated Silicon Valley Bank and uh, had a lot of interest rate risk that was not properly regulated. Do you think that a lot of regulatory power should be moved away from the Federal Reserve to the FDIC, given the track record of the FDIC and the Fed? Overall, I do think I know the the FDIC probably had some did have some opportunities for improvement uh, in their own supervision of Signature and First Republic, uh, but uh, it, it, but clearly the Fed was uh, was very to their credit, very open and honest, taking responsibility for some of the mistakes that they made. So. I do think over time, yes, the FDIC has been the stronger supervisor. In my book, I actually suggested that we just have two regulatory bodies, the Fed, which would be a holding company supervisor, but the FDIC would have all the insured banks because and you because you can the FDIC is going to be the toughest and the most, you know, uh, robust because again, they've got money on the line with those insured deposits. Whereas the Fed, I think, has got, you know, uh, given their resources and broader reach in the economy, holding company supervision, where they're taking a look at the securities affiliates, the insurance affiliates, derivatives, et cetera, that would make more sense. And I still think that would make some sense. I know there are some now that are saying supervision should just be taken away from the Fed. You know, I guess a, a larger concern I have, you know, and just looking at what they do in the UK and Europe is is supervision just still seems to be, and and by association, financial stability seems to be secondary to the monetary policy process. 
and they're not integrated. And I, some of the things I hear the the Fed board and, and regional banks saying, you know, disdainful of any financial stability issues. And by golly, they're going to fight inflation and they don't care about the banks. You know, it was, it was kind of like that. And you got some of them saying, you know, well, we're not going to bail out the banks. We're going to keep raising rates. No, no, no. You're not going to have a soft landing if we have a financial crisis. But it, it just shows some of the public statements showed to me a lack of depth in terms of appreciating the instability that's created when interest rates are going up so quickly. So I don't know how to address that. Perhaps one way is to have an entire separate supervisory board that would be part of the Fed, but maybe that would enhance the the stature of the supervisory function and create greater awareness of the organization and more interaction between the two about financial stability risk being, you know, taken into account in monetary policy. Others say, well, maybe that would even separate it further from monetary policy decision-making. But I, I do think we need to look at the Fed structurally and why they are so it's sensitive to stability issues. This came up, you know, when uh, Jerome Powell was up for reappointment, and I, I was supporting Leo Breeder mainly because um, I did not feel Jerome Powell, and his public statements reflected this, he didn't have an experience of supervision, he viewed it in his public statements. He repeatedly said, well, that's why we have a vice chair supervision to worry about that. Whereas Leal, I knew, would understand the financial stability implications and the supervisory challenges are rapidly, you know, an environment where rates were rapidly going up. She would understand those interconnections. And so, but now I think, you know, those chickens are coming home to roost, as they say. So hopefully Sheer Cal and everybody else at the Fed understands now they need to pay, you know, they need to listen to Michael Barr and pay attention uh, to supervisory issues. Uh, but I don't, taking it completely away from them, I don't know. Uh, I think taking, giving insured banks to the FDIC, but leaving some of the other, uh, the holding company uh, apparatus be so be the best solution. Thank you. And, and by that, I think you mean that perhaps Lael Brainerd might have Raise interest rates, but a little less aggressively, a little less quickly. That would have given. Yes. Oh, I, I think she absolutely would have. It would have been more gradual. Yeah, yes, absolutely. Yeah, she gave a great speech late late last year uh, about about just this, and um, without you know particularly being expressed about they needed to stop. She was the signaling that she did was 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 quite significant, and it's not just financial instability. It's it's the risk of a deep recession, which of course. The risk of that has increased if you have a financial crisis, but she did. She was around during the great financial crisis. She worked at Treasury then, but I do think she understood those dynamics a little better. I do think she would have gone slower. Absolutely. There's no doubt. Right. So, so perhaps getting to 5.25% in interest rates from zero uh, was a mistake, at least getting there that fast. Do you think the, the Federal Reserve should... Uh, cut rates uh, in order to, to help them no, out? No, and that's the thing. I said, said that last December, they should they should hit pause. And I'm an inflation hawk. I, I've never heard these yet. low words. I just really, I don't, the, the financial instability, the, the leverage, the asset inflation, I mean, all of that is unwinding now. And it's, it's going to be a tough, tough ride. So yeah, no, I think they should have uh, hit pause in December. And I think if, if they had slowed down or at least stopped and assessed, a pause is not stopping. A pause is certainly not cutting. A pause is a pause. Stop, assess. Is inflation coming down? You know, how's the financial sector holding up? How's the labor market holding up? That's what you do. And it would be better to slow down and be a little more deliberative, but maintain course and get to where you want to be versus zooming ahead, you know, catalyzing 
big market disruption, then having to pull back very quickly. And then and then we've got the worst of all worlds. We've got probably got a deep recession and we've got low interest rates again with all the baggage that, that entails. So uh, I, I, I do think I don't I don't want them to cut. I, I really hope they don't cut. I hope they don't have to cut. But that's the that's the kind of back and forth that Paul Volcker was confronting, and he did cut temporarily in the early eighties. I think he regretted it and then had to raise again. It was a short recession, thank good. And and uh, and uh, but but you know, but that's you, you don't want to have to, you don't want to cut again. You don't want to cut again. And it, getting a slower pace would make it more likely that you won't have to cut. Thank you. I, I didn't know Paul Volcker regretted cutting rates. That you would know. Well, like I said that. I, I think well, you, you, you were. He, he was also on the systemic uh, risk council. So. Yeah, he was. Uh, well, he, the Volcker Alliance. Yes, I was a founding director on the Volcker Alliance, and um, and maybe I shouldn't say that. I, I think I think that was something he was he thought a lot about. Let me put it that way. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> okay. I, I, I well, um, it's been so, so great getting to hear your insights. Thank you so much for for sharing your sure. time and your your knowledge. Um, and then thank you everyone for watching. This has been fantastic. Yep, good. I'll enjoy the conversation. Take questions. Forward Guidance, the program you just enjoyed, hopefully, can be viewed on YouTube at BlockWorks Macro or heard as a podcast on Apple Podcast and Spotify. Episodes are typically released on Apple and Spotify a few hours before they air on YouTube. Please leave a review on Apple Podcast if you feel so inclined. Also, you can get 10% off to Permissionless 2023 and BlockWorks Research using code GUIDANCE10. Thanks again and be well.